Welcome to the EO Smith Sports Talk Podcast. And now, here's your host, Brendan Rader. Welcome in episode 21 of the EO Smith Sports Talk Podcast. We've got some NFL news, the Sam Darnold trade to Carolina. We've got March Madness, obviously Baylor wins the men's bracket and Stanford for the women's. And we've got our weekly soccer, but we've got to start in the NFL where the headlines rule the world. Sam Darnold traded to the Panthers for a future two, a future four, and a six-round pick. I'm joined by Leon and Parker. Alex should be joining us shortly. Leon, is this a good move for the Panthers to give up some, some decent draft capital for a quarterback who's unproven but was highly touted in the draft just three years ago? Yeah, Sam Darnold is an elite quarterback, I believe. He, he can get back on track with the Panthers, with uh, offensive coordinator Joe Brady. We saw what he, do- we saw what he did with LSU, at, at LSU. And with the weapons around him, Sam Donaldson never had that weapon around him. And I believe he can show why he's, he was the top three pick. I completely disagree with you. I'm completely out on Sam Donald. Here's why. Because we've seen good quarterbacks with bad teams. We've seen Deshaun with the Texans this year. We've seen other teams with good quarterbacks that have not had great support around them. And Sam Donald is a completely different story. He was contributing to why that team was bad, throwing careless interceptions, awful throws, just not having what it takes to be the starting quarterback, to be the franchise guy. I think he should not be starting for the Panthers. I think they had much better decisions, even sticking with Bridgewater or going somewhere else. I think it's an awful move for the Panthers, and it's just going to result in worse than what happened last year. I'm going to have to side with Leon on this one for the simple fact that, as he mentioned, Sam Darnold was put in the worst situation in the league. Adam Gase was the worst coach in the league at the time. They had no receivers. Le'Veon Bell was overpaid. He was a terrible running back. They had no offensive line. They had a terrible scheme. He really had nothing going for him. I think the Carolina Panthers, you mentioned that they weren't a good team. You compared them to the Texans. I actually disagree. I think DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson, Christian McCaffrey, that offense led by Joe Brady, who's this college coordinator genius, I think he can get Sam Darnold back to that form where he was drafted third overall in, what, the 2017 draft. I think it's a great move because they don't give up a first-round pick and they get a guy that could potentially be their future quarterback. And if not, they move on from him in a year or two. Um, right, I, the other- I never I never compared the Panthers to the Texans. I compared Sam Darnold to the Jets in contrary to what Deshaun did with the Texans. And I know Sam Darnold is nowhere nearly as good as Deshaun, even if he is that good quarterback. But just the comparison of seeing Deshaun was still, be, still able to be the leading passer on that awful Texans team. Sam Darnold on the Jets looked the wor- worst than he ever did in college. Worse than ever. Worse right. than 30 other quarterbacks. He looked awful. And that's a good point. I, I just, I mean, he's not a Sam, he's, or sorry, he's not Deshaun Watson. Like, I think what he's trying to become is, you know, an, an average, maybe a little bit above average quarterback in the league. And that's that's all they think they need down there in Carolina with that off with those offensive weapons. Um, they've got what the eighth pick, ninth pick here. I think they're gonna have a nice team next year. I think they could be a playoff team for sure. Um, and then the other side of this, as you mentioned, Teddy Bridgewater, right? It sounds like the the Panthers have let him seek trades um with his agent. And you just can't really see a way that him and Darnold are gonna be competing for this QB spot. So he'll probably be on the move. In my opinion, you know, the Patriots always a name to watch out for. Parker, I know you'll hate that as a cam supporter. Leon, any good landing spot for Bridgewater? Teddy H2O is a career backup quarterback. He is washed. That that leg injury took his career down. I don't think he can be a starter anywhere in the league. Right. Um, I like Teddy Ridgewater as a quarterback. I think after those, he was a great quarterback before those injuries, and I'm very disappointed to see what happened after because he's not nearly as good. He's older. But I think Teddy does deserve a spot somewhere, maybe not in Carolina, although – I think he should stay on Carolina, and here's why. Sam Darnold, if Sam Darnold shows any of the same aspects of what he did on the Jets, you need somebody in there to pull him out because there's 40 other guys better than if he performs the same as he did on the Jets. There's plenty of other guys, so you need somebody, and I think Bridgewater's that perfect guy to compete with Darnold and see where it goes. Yeah, that's a good call. My problem is, A, the salary, right? If you're going to take on that huge salary of a backup quarterback, you know, he's, I think he has 10 million guaranteed. That's just not a contract you can have for a backup. And then B, right. They always say, if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have a quarterback. Just look at the dolphins last year. In my opinion, if they had a steady solid quarterback, if they had just given Fitzpatrick the starting job all year and said two is not going to play, I think they're in the playoffs. 
but they miss the playoffs because they keep flip-flopping between the quarterbacks. You lose your locker room. That's just not something I can, I think the Panthers can do this year is flip-flop between the two. And that's where I say, you know, do they release him or trade him for cheap? I think new England's the perfect spot. Him and Cam can compete for a starting job when there's not, you know, both of these guys are veterans who you could argue are both backup quarterbacks. If Cam's not working out, put Teddy in there. We know Teddy's capable. I mean, he had what three 1000 yard receivers last year or two, um, you know, if a, in a great scheme with those two tight ends, Jonu Smith and Hunter Henry, I think that fit could actually really work. Let's look right, at I'm, I'm not saying that Sam Darnold is like going to flip-flop with Teddy Bridgewater. I mean, you oh, you way overpaid for Sam Darnold. You're not going to bring him in there to flip-flop. I think what they need to do is throw Sam Darnold in that offense, and as soon as you see maybe week one or week two, if, if you see something that shows that he hasn't changed from that Jets offense, then pull him out for the rest of the year, maybe throw him back in if he shows something in practice. But you pull him out for the rest of the year because he just if he does that and you don't have a guy to back him up, then you're throwing away a season with that great offense. You're throwing away a season with those great running backs. You're throwing away a season for Christian McCaffrey. That's a playoff-ready team, a quarterback away, one of the few quarterback away teams. And I think you have to have a backup plan before everything comes crashing down. Yeah, that's fair. If he, if he's willing to take a pay cut to stay in Carolina as a backup, I'd be very surprised. Um, if that's a possibility, I could see it as a good move for the Panthers potentially. But at his salary and you know at his point in his career, I can't see how he'd want to be a backup, and I can't see how they'd want him want to pay him that much. Let's look at the third aspect: New York, right? They get rid of their quarterback. Now they have no quarterback on the roster, but they have that second pick. Presumably, Zach Wilson's their next quarterback. So. Right now, they don't have a veteran quarterback. They don't have anyone to compete for the starting job. It looks like they're just giving Zach Wilson the starting job day one of that organization. Leon, we've seen guys like Mahomes who've sat here and they've had great careers, but we saw a guy like Justin Herbert kind of thrown in early last year, and he had a great season. So in your opinion, is this a good move by the Jets, or should they target a Teddy Bridgewater type of guy, you know, just to hold over for a year or half of a year? Zach Wilson, I like his talent. But I think he's going to join a long list of Jets quarterback who has been cut, draft traded away. Or I, I just don't think that the Jets are ready to win. And putting Zach Wilson in that situation is going to show is going to create a dis- disaster. And that and Sam Donald showed that. And I think Zach Wilson is going to show that again. That was maybe Leon's most subtle hot take of his podcasting career. I mean, that is a bold take to say the second pick of the draft is going to be. So a you believe any quarterback? You believe any quarterback to get drafted to the Jets is just going to turn into a catastrophe? Is just going to go down the drain? There, there is hope because there is hope because the Jets got a, a new offense coordinator, a new new coach, new coach, and Robert Sala and a new GM. But I, I still believe the Jets are just not ready to win, and I think they need to build uh, from the outside and not from the quarterback. Right. Uh, Alex, Alex just joined us here on the podcast. Alex, we've been reviewing the Sam Darnold trade for the past couple, like past 10 minutes here. Um, there's three aspects to it, right? There's Sam Darnold in Carolina. Was that a good fit? Did they overpay? Then there's Teddy Bridgewater. Where's a good fit for him? Should he stay as a backup in, in Carolina and take a pay cut? Maybe New England. And then the third aspect, which we're just reaching on here, Zach Wilson is now handed the keys of the day one starter in Carolina, unless they go target a veteran. Do you think that's a good move or would you prefer kind of that Mahomes style where you sit behind a veteran for a year or half a year? Um, I, I think for a guy like Wilson who had one good year out at BYU, and I, I hope we touch on the quarterbacks later because I when we were talking about this yesterday, Brendan. I got my comments about the quarterbacks in this draft. I think it's best for Wilson if that's their long-term solution, and I, I think it should be Fields. I think Fields is the number two guy in the draft. If Wilson is their long-term solution, that's fine, but go out and get a veteran and and – have him learn under the veteran for a year. This Jets team is, like Leon said, not – they're not extremely talented. They have talent on the outsides. I mean, Denzel Mims is, was a really good prospect come, uh, coming out of college. They got Mekhi Becton on the offensive line. I think if you let him sit for a year, then next year's draft, you load up on offensive uh, line talent, weapons for the outside – I think you'd be in a really good position for Zach Wilson year two to come in and be handed the keys then to a good offense that has talent on the outside and good offensive line play. My thing is, who are you going to let him sit behind? What would you do? Zach Wilson? uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, like pretty much any veteran quarterback works. I mean, mean, you're you're not trying to win this year. 
yeah, you need a good veteran quarterback to sit behind, to teach him, to mentor him, to be a good quarterback when he gets thrown in. I think that the Jets are know that they're not going to be a playoff team. They know they're not going to be a playoff coordinator. Throw Zach Wilson in for a year. Tell him the stakes aren't too high. See what he does. I just said, I mean, there's not a guy that you can put him behind that's going to help him as that much anyway. Alex, looking at it from the Sam Darnold side, do you think that's a good fit in Carolina for him to go down there for the second, fourth, and sixth-round picks? Second, fourth, and sixth-round picks? That seems like a lot for Sam Darnold. Uh, I I mean, I don't really know a whole lot about Darnold. I don't watch the Jets a lot. He seems like he kind of got screwed over with not having uh, talent with the Jets, but I don't know. He wasn't wildly impressive for me. It'll be interesting to see how he does with Matt Rule in in Carolina because they got Joe Brady to the offensive. I believe that's our offensive coordinator, right? It is. Great. So this very. Um, he was really effective at at LSU. So it'll be interesting to see what he does with another young QB who can really whip it around. Obviously, Darnold's not anything special, but he's definitely better than Teddy Bridgewater in my opinion. So yeah. I, I think it could be a good fit. Yeah, here's my hot take on this trade. I think Sam Darnold is going to get Joe Brady a head coaching job next offseason. I think the Panthers will become wait, 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 a, like NFL head coaching an, job. An NFL head coaching job. He was he was in the interview circuit just this offseason, right? He's you know he's this highly touted college offensive genius, these new gurus that are getting all of these head coaching positions. And at the same time, right, the Panthers were, what, 7-9 and nine last year? You know, they, they kind of just fell out of the playoff picture. I think they make the playoffs this year. And then I think that's just enough with, you know, two years of a, a good offense, really. You know, you see last year Mike Davis having success without McCaffrey. You know, they still have Bridgewater. That offense was still a good offense. I think they're a great offense this year. And I think Joe Brady's going to get a head coaching job. Let's look at the, uh, the Falcons at four, right? It seems like the draft maybe starts there if Mac Jones goes third overall. Um, and then we have Fields and Lance still on the board. You have to imagine that fourth pick, you know, they're getting a lot of calls now about that fourth pick for probably Justin Fields. I mean, I know Alex loves him. If you're the Falcons and you don't want a quarterback, you're getting calls from teams, maybe the Broncos, the Patriots, the Bears. Um, do you really, do you guys really think it's smart to stick with Matt Ryan, who might be 38 years old, or would you take a Justin Fields? No, you need to start looking for your long-term solution. I, how long is Matt Ryan going to be around there? This draft is loaded with QB talent. I mean, we, we got the first five guys who are could all – I mean, we don't know how it's going to shake out, but they could all be really good. Then you got guys who nobody's even talking about, like Kyle Trask and Kellen Mond, who are still pretty good prospects. I mean, this draft is loaded with talent. you got to go out and find someone in this draft. This is the draft to get it done. How much longer is Matt Ryan going to be an effective QB in the NFL? And you don't know what's going to happen next year or the year after that when it comes to QB. I mean, next year, the only guy we're looking at really is Sam Howell. Maybe year after that, you get Spencer Rattler. But, you know, there's no security in waiting. And, and Matt Ryan is only going to get older and he's only going to get worse. It's time to get the solution now. I think they need to pick a QB at four. I'm, I'm a little confused because – Last year, we saw the same situation with Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, and I understand Aaron oh, Rodgers. no, no, no. He's a way no, better no. quarterback, and he's on a bigger deal. I understand that. that but then really- when the Packers drafted Jordan Love, everybody went crazy saying it was an awful decision. Now we're at the yeah. same point with the this, Falcons. This, this, Matt Ryan is their franchise guy. He's been their franchise guy. No, he's no, no. This, great this, as Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady. This is an entirely different circumstance, and here's why. One, Aaron Rodgers had basically no help last year. Okay, He needed wide receivers bad. That was a loaded wide receiver class. You pick wide receiver instead of Jordan Love. Additionally, Rodgers, I believe, is younger, if not around the same age as Ryan, and he's infinitely infinitely better than Ryan. Like Matt, Matt Ryan is good, and he, he's been good, but Aaron Rodgers is a world-class quarterback. You need to help him out and get him help. You don't draft – a, a quarterback in the first round, knowing that this quarterback's not going to play for another four years because Roger is still so on his game. Like he needs help, and you need to and, win now. And Alex, wait, wait, wait. but Alex, Matt Ryan is the, Matt Ryan is their franchise guy. Wait, as well. wait hold on, hold on. If, Here, if Alex pointed out the key difference is that Rogers is way better than Ryan. Rogers was. The I, understand that. I understand that. And here's the here's the biggest difference that Alex didn't even bother to mention. The Falcons were the worst, one of the worst teams in the league last year, which is why they're sitting at number four. The Packers had a late first-round pick. They were a Super Bowl contending team with the MVP quarterback. They had a chance to add a first-round talent to their roster with Super Bowl aspirations, and instead they added some guy to hold the clipboard for Aaron Rodgers 
who now they have to get rid of to get this guy Jordan Love on the field to make it look like it was a good decision to draft a quarterback late in the first round last year. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, let me ask you this. Top of that, if they draft, if they draft Lancer Fields, right, he doesn't play this year. Does he play next year? Yes, Matt Ryan is not. Ryan, it's about anymore. time for Matt they, Ryan. They ship play. out their franchise guy. You can ship out at Matt Ryan at this age of thirty-nine. At this point in his career, you can ship Matt Ryan out. You I don't think they ship will. Ship out Aaron Rodgers at this point in Aaron Rodgers' career. I don't think they will. The Falcons have still, the Falcons have had Matt Ryan for so long. He's I been agree. For so long. I don't think they will. I totally agree. The question was, what should they? And and I'm with Alex. Right. Justin should. Fields. Justin Fields should be wearing a Falcons uniform next year if the Jets and the 49ers are going to pass on him. Right. Look, the, the kid's from Georgia. He grew up outside of Atlanta. It's time for him to head back home to Atlanta, play for the Falcons, play for his hometown team that he grew up watching. They, like, they need to get rid of Matt Ryan. He's so let's, let's no say the longer. Okay, instead of what they should do, because we know they, we know they won't. Then, Bennett, how many years do you think that the Falcons will stick with Matt Ryan? Right, I think they're going to have a terrible year this year. They're gonna, I think they're going to trade out of the pick. They're going to get an extra first-round pick next year, maybe move back to seven, take a Pitts or a, you know, a Sewell, somebody like that. And, and then I think next year, I think they're going to have a bad year. They're going to be in the top couple picks, and next year maybe they get the guy out of North Carolina um, that, that Alex just mentioned. Or maybe, maybe another quarterback moves up the boards. That quarterback class doesn't look strong, but I can imagine you know another Mac Jones, another uh, Zach Wilson type of deal. With what the top picks are trading for this year, you can trade out, try it for another year with Matt Ryan, and if it goes bad, you have the same spot almost next year. I, I see what you're saying. My problem is they were so bad this year with Matt Ryan at the helm. Do you think adding, you know, maybe a, a Penny Sewell or a Kyle Pitts, they become from the fourth worst team in the league to a playoff team? I mean, that's what you're you're trying right. to work towards the playoffs. So, like, you're not getting better. Like if Matt Ryan's just getting older and Julio's getting older, like they don't have talent on that roster. But then drafting a Justin Fields or a Trey Lance to sit on the bench for two to three years is oh, also no, 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 no. One, year, one year, one year, one year. They're not going to get rid of Matt Ryan after next year. Well, that, that's, if you, you know, don't take Justin, Justin Fields, just, this is the, the, the Falcons are in, in, a, in such a good position right now because it looks like picks one, two, and three are set. And they're not set in the right order because nobody's picking these quarterbacks in the right order. But it's set Lawrence, which is good, Wilson, which is bad, Jones, which is bad. And then you got four, and you got your option between Lance and Fields. Fields is, in my opinion, quarterback 1B in this draft. He is up there right behind Trevor Lawrence. He's on his heels. You could take the second best quarterback by far in this QB class and get rid of dusty old Matt Ryan who can't run around for anything. Get this guy who can throw 60-yard deep balls on a dime and run a 4-4-40 at quarterback. And he's not he's not like wimpy too. Like he's a big strong quarterback too. Like he's he is a do-it-all everything guy. I love Fields. You need to take him at 4 if he's available. All right. All right. All right. We're a sports talk show, so we love our hypotheticals, right? Let's get into the hypothetical. They don't want to take a quarterback at four, right? And they're going to trade out if they don't take a quarterback. That's just my opinion because of the value they can get. So let's say a team wants a Trey Lance or Justin Fields. Alex, in your opinion, which team should do that? And which team do you think has the draft capital? Is it the Broncos or the Patriots or the Bears? Which of those teams really do you see should move up? I I think there's a whole number of teams that could go up and get Justin Fields. Again, like again, I've made my case. Justin Fields is quarterback one B in this draft class. I think any number of teams could want him. If you're talking specifics, I think it'd be really interesting to see him with the Patriots. He's basically, I mean, Cam Newton is a used to a be similar a, skill set for sure. Exactly, it used to be a big, strong, fast quarterback who was mobile. I mean, that's basically what Justin Fields is. He's just got a better arm. Like, imagine the Patriots trade up to four and grow grab Fields. Like, how interesting would that be to see? See Bill Belichick for the first time in his career working with a truly mobile QB who can really zip it around. I mean, I guess Cam Newton was a little bit mobile last year, but he's getting older and he's his arm is definitely not as great as Fields. I mean, how interesting would that be to see with with yeah, Belichick? Right, and and, the, and you're building your scheme, you're building your offense around Cam Newton, and and the way Justin Fields, you know, he's much better thrower than Cam Newton. But when Cam Newton was the MVP of the league, like that size and athleticism and speed, I think Justin Fields has those similar traits. Very similar, you know, body type um, and attributes like that. So I think if you're building your offense around Cam, that offense would perfectly fit around Fields. You just have a much better thrower. So maybe you start with Cam for a couple of games and then transition to Fields. If the Patriots, if the Patriots can move up to four 
or if Fields can, you know, slide a little further and they can get him, that would be the best the best draft. Yeah, move. both both Patriots quarterbacks for their first read. I think I think the Broncos is the team that's my needs- big problem this year. This is my big problem this year. People hate Justin Fields for absolutely no reason. This dude was a Heisman finalist in the year that Joe Burrow won the freaking award. He went to the college football playoff tight twice. He should have gone to the championship twice. He hadn't got screwed by the refs against Clemson. This is a guy who, in the second best conference in all of college football, to put up two amazing numbers, put up amazing numbers in two years was arguably a a a Heisman candidate, Heisman winner. Well, not couldn't have been a Heisman winner, but he could have been a Heisman candidate if he if if the Big Ten had decided to actually freaking play some games this year. He could have been a Heisman, another Heisman candidate. He went to the playoff twice. This dude has had loads of success running the ball, throwing the ball against some of the best defenses in the Big Ten. I mean, how do you how do you like argue against this? Oh, he threw to his first. He's the typical college football quarterback. Just came out of his hole. He's been sitting in for eleven and a half months. The argument can be made, Parker. Have you this, watched college football? Do you know how good Justin Fields is? No. This is a guy who shows up in big moments. He's a winner. He's All he's done since getting to Ohio State is win. He's beaten Trevor Lawrence, what, twice in the two consecutive college football playoffs. I mean, this is a guy who takes an Ohio State roster that never seems as good as those Clemson and Alabama rosters. In these past two years, he has performed on the biggest stages when Trevor Lawrence has not shown up. So if you want to make the argument for Justin Fields as the first pick, I think you could even do that. Right. To me, he's that typical college football quarterback. He's similar to do it. It's not that he's better. He's better, but it's a similar type. It's a similar build as to a, he's a guy who can run and runs a lot in college. Big difference between Tua and, and Justin Fields. Fields has a stronger arm. Fields is faster. Fields is more physical. Fields is a better runner. I mean, Tua was a system QB at Alabama. He was a he was a, a pocket passer at Alabama. That's definitely not what Justin Fields is. Justin Fields is you can run the option with him. You can run quarterback runs with him. He's mobile. He can get out of the pocket. Tua was not that kind of player. You're not running an option game with Tua. Justin Fields, you definitely can because he's big and he's physical and he can take shots. And he did in the Big Ten. Big Ten is probably is is arguably the second most physical league in college football. And he was taking shots from Big Ten defenses. I but mean, now you're in the NFL. If he's not Lamar Jackson, if he's not Michael Vick, he's not going to run. He's not going to be that running guy. He's going to use his legs, and it's going to help him, but yes. he can't do Alex, what he did in college. I he could can't. see durability as a question for Justin Fields because you mentioned, I mean, he's taken some big hits, and he hasn't been injured like Tua, but looking at Cam Newton, right, like Justin Fields could be a terrific quarterback, but is he as sustainable as a Trevor Lawrence, a Zach Wilson, maybe a Trey Lance or a Mac Jones? And- it's not his game to sit back in the pocket and throw the ball around, but he can sit in the pocket and throw the ball. He likes to get outside of the pocket because it puts defenses on edge, see a quarterback running around in the backfield, throwing balls 60 yards downfield. But you saw him against Clemson, right? This dude can sit back and throw a ball from the 40-yard line, the opposite 40-yard line, to the goal line on a dime between two defenders to Chris Olave. I mean, he's got a great arm. He's great accuracy. He can throw the ball great down the field. I don't know how what, what you don't like about Justin Fields. I don't understand. Like, what is there to not like about this guy? And that's what it's going to depend on. It's going to depend on his pocket passing because I think the scrambling, the running, I in the NFL, it doesn't translate from college to the NFL like a lot of quarterbacks Russell think. Wilson. And I just think that Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson and Mac Jones are all better pocket passers than Justin Fields. I think, I think it depends on what, yes. what coaching he goes to, like – I feel like he's, he was keeping coached really well in Ohio State. And I believe the, the best quarterback to come out of this draft is going to be Trevor Lawrence and a quarterback that's going to be drafted by the 49ers. I believe the 49ers are going to play put their quarterback in the best situation possible, and that's going to be the number two quarterback in this draft, I believe. That's a good take for sure. Let's go to the bottom of the first round. We've got the Bucks, Chiefs, Packers, and Bills. Those are you know the four best teams in the NFL last year, presumably the four best heading into this season as well. They, they each have a couple needs, but in your guys' opinion, what's one team that has the biggest positional need? Like, I'll start. I think for me, it's the Bills getting a running back. I think if they can yeah. develop a running game with ETN or Najee Harris, I think they become a huge Super Bowl threat that they weren't last year when they were one-dimensional team. I think the Bills have to pick good. Najee Harris. Yeah, I think everybody's going to agree that the Bills running back is the best decision because Chiefs are already a Super Bowl team, right? With O-line, they have Bills. Need something else to be a Super Bowl team, and that's that running. But which back. running back do you pick? Do you pick Javante Williams, Najee Harris, or Travis Etienne? I might I think go. Najee Harris is the best running back in the draft, but I also think 
the North Carolina running backs are better than Travis Etienne. I think Travis Etienne is way overhyped. So you're taking Michael Carter and Javante Williams over Travis Etienne. The problem, the problem, with those two are better, yeah, better than Travis Etienne. Yes. The problem with Najee Harris is you need to throw him into that Bills, which is pretty much a dominantly passing offense. Which he might not be the greatest fit in that offense, but I still think talent-wise, he peaks way over these other guys in the draft. I think you can't pass up on him. You you'd rather teach him to be a passing back than to throw another guy in there who's worse. Who's that? Who are you talking about? Uh, Parker, who are you talking not, about? Not Najee. Oh, not not Najee is a pass. Najee can um can catch passes though. I mean, you, you see him like it's um he doesn't do it a lot at Alabama because when you have Henry Ruggs and uh, Jerry Judy, Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, John Mechie, you're not really thrown to a running back out of the backfield. But at least this year when when Waddle was down, they definitely utilized him more uh, as kind of an alternative in the passing game to Devontae Smith, to John Mechie. You can watch games of him playing Florida in the SEC championship. He'll go on a wheel route and body up a, a linebacker and go up and catch that ball. You, he's he's out of the backfield running slants. I mean, he can catch the ball. He just doesn't do it a lot at Alabama because they don't need him to do it. When you right, have, I think when you have five star wide receivers all over the place, any running back can become a pass catcher. It's really not that hard for them. Just do what you do, but just go out and catch the ball first. But I think having that in that offense, plus then having him in the backfield coming through in the run game, I think the Bills. I'm putting the Bills in my Super Bowl favorites with Najee Harris. Yeah. Super Bowl. Let's beyond, beyond the Bills running back need. I mean, that one is obvious as Parker mentioned, but I think you graze past the Chiefs offensive line needs just too much. I mean, they've they've acquired Joe Tooney, so they have a solid left guard. They just got Blythe the center, so they have a center now. They have a right guard in Tadarif, the doctor coming back, and they also got Kyle Long. So they have interior offensive line built up for this year. I think they're solid there. But when you look at the tackle spots, I believe they re-signed Remmers, who in the Super Bowl, got absolutely destroyed by Pierre Paul and Shaq Barrett, who, again, they might see in the Super Bowl. And they have no other tackle. So heading into this draft, and maybe they can get one in free agency, I don't really think there's much left. Um, they really need to tackle. That might be a bigger need than the Bills running backs because, you know, can Zach Moss or Devin Singletary take over? Can they go get a Giovanni Bernard? Somebody to just fill in? Like, the Chiefs need tackles. You can't just put Andrew Wiley out there. We just saw in the Super Bowl. The Chiefs aren't a Super Bowl contender without acquiring a tackle in this draft or in somehow in free agency or via trade. Maybe they get Orlando Brown via from the Ravens. Maybe they give up a first to get him. Like, if they can't get a good tackle, the Chiefs aren't a Super Bowl contender. All right. I think it is a big move to get a tackle for the Chiefs, but you said the biggest move here, and I don't think one tackle – is going to do nearly as much as a whole running game will do for the Bills. I still think it's a big move. They need a tackle. You're right. They, to be Super Bowl contenders, they need a tackle. But to be Super Bowl contenders, you need a run game. And that's what they a lot more than the Chiefs need a tackle. And and not, what's special about Najee Harris is he doesn't need an insanely good offensive line like a, run, a lot of running backs do to come up with big plays. Najee Harris is one of those guys. Uh, I'll take the Ohio State game as an example, the national championship. I mean, you're watching him first quarter. Uh, Najee Harris gets hit in the backfield, uh, gets hit uh, two, two yards behind the line. Uh, he squirts for a five-yard gain. I mean, this is the kind of running that he get, he brings to the game. He gets hit, and he just keeps moving forward and turns out runs, five-yard run after five-yard run after five-yard run. Like, that's the kind of guy you want in your offense, especially with the Bills, who don't have an amazing run-blocking offensive line. Najee Harris is your answer for the Bills. He makes them a, a Super Bowl I mean, you do have to consider, though, that he, he's playing against college defenses. He's playing with an Alabama offensive line that is pretty much – He's playing against the SEC, line. which is the most physical conference right. Right. In, in all of college right. football. But again, it's different they're, from the NFL, they're, they're not NFL but it's still players. extremely physical. Wait, I think if you watch – Not the NFL. He's going to take – If you watch the NFL hit. football, I think that's what makes the top running backs way better than the bottom running backs. You see the Derrick Henrys and the Dalvin Cooks. They're at 10, 15 miles an hour – Running into the trenches, you see other running backs, they're stopping, waiting to see what holes open up. Najee Harris is that perfect build. He has that perfect running type of just get the ball and go, hit the trenches, and he turns – when he gets stuffed at the line, he, he turns it into three, four, five-yard gains, and that's what you need from a run game. You don't need 80-yard runs. You need five, five, six, three. You need those consistent yardage runs. Right, but, but Derrick Henry is one of a kind, and then 
Dalvin Cook isn't really a bruising running back. I mean, this is a guy who jukes people out of their shoes all game every. He doesn't run up the gut for three yards constantly. I mean, this is a big play guy who breaks out 70-yard runs. He jukes people out of their shoes. Like, those elite running backs are good at avoiding contact. Look at McCaffrey and Saquon, even Dalvin Cook. I mean, these are guys who, you know, are speedy. They can juke you out of your shoes. Like, they're not guys that are just running into tackles beyond Derrick Henry, who's, you know, of course, what, 6'5 and ginormous. Like, that's watch, not here. Go back and watch Dalvin Cook's highlights. Watch Dalvin Cook's season. You see him get the ball, whether it is an outside run or an inside run. You see him get the ball, and you see him charge at that defensive line. And you see him, sometimes he gets contact, he breaks free, and then goes for 20 yards. Like, yeah. that's what – I'm with I'm I'm Carter here. I a lot of Dalvin Cook. And – Whenever he ran up the middle, he got stuffed. And I get angered by fantasy points. I'm not saying up the middle. I'm saying not completely on the other side of the tackles. I'm saying when you're running through the trenches. A lot, right. 90% of runs are through the trenches, through some sort of lineman. A few not, are. Not, any, not anymore. Now, now offenses, these West Coast spread offenses, they run to the tackles. They run outside the tackles. They run outside the tight end. I mean, that's that's what the modern offense is. That's the Shanahan offense. That's the McVay offense. I mean, that, that's what the new running back offenses are. I mean, even the Titans, like they run Derrick Henry to the outside a lot more than people realize. Yeah, right. I think is running to the outside. Yeah. I, I don't think Dalvin Cook is a bruiser guy, but I think when you take that speed to a defender, it's a lot easier to break a tackle than when you're stopped looking for a hole, you're easy to wrap up. Whether it is juking or trucking, I'm not saying it's just trucking for five yards. I'm saying it's the ability to get five yards in a run that might look like it's been blown up at the line. All right, we're speaking of the edge here. I want everyone to pick one. Everybody give me their best pass rusher in the league just for next year, heading into next year. So it could be a veteran guy. It could be a Chandler Jones. You could say Aaron Donald clogging up the middle. Maybe it's a TJ Watt, one of the Bosa brothers, Miles Garrett, someone like that. Let's start with you, Alex. Who's your best pass rusher in the league for next year? Aaron Donald. Come on. <laughs> That's easy. Aaron Donald, definitely. No explanation needed. That guy is legit. Best yeah. defensive player we've seen in a generation. That's Miles Garrett. He got robbed. He got robbed. No, it was TJ Watt. He got robbed of – um. The defensive player of the year this year. Oh my god, don't give me this crap again. He's the best pass rusher this year. Give me the comeback of Nick Bosa coming off that ACL tear. He's gonna come and he's bad. He's angered. He's gonna come and crush quarterbacks to the ground. Yes, sir, Parker. That's the exact reason I put this question into our podcast planning because I wanted to say that Nick Bosa will be, he's the most forgotten about player of the year. The 49ers, he is the quarterback of their defense. He is the best pass rusher in the NFL. He will be paid as such. I could see $30 million going to Nick Bosa in next offseason or two offseason. This is a guy who disrupts their everyone's game plan defensively, and the 49ers were absolutely lacking that next year or last yeah. year. So I think it this does, it does depend on that ACL, though. I hope he comes back full, but I, I, yeah, I think that's an injury you can overcome. I mean, if not, TJ Watt and Miles Garrett, two strong options. And obviously, Alex mentioned Aaron Donald, generational player. My problem with him, though, is, you know, he he clogs the middle, like, right? He's like, he's as much a run stuffer as he is a pass rusher, which yeah. he, he might still be the best pass rusher in the league because he's that good. But I think, you know, guys like Miles Garrett and TJ Watt who specialize in pass rushing are a little better than him in that category. All right, before we go, I wanted to mention that we are doing a sports talk podcast draft pool, which you can join on the Mock Out app. Um, if you would like to join, you can reach out to me at Brandon or Rainer B22 at eosmith.org, or you can find us on Instagram, EOS Sports Talk Club, um, anywhere you want. Find the link, join our bracket challenge or our mock draft challenge, and uh, good luck to everyone. That'll be fun. We can, you know, follow that and maybe give, give it a little prize to the winner. We'll see how that goes. I know Leon will not be winning that. Um, I think that's it. Anyone else have anything to add? Yeah, the quarterbacks this year rank Lawrence, Fields, Jones, Lance, and uh, anyone else. I don't know. Wilson's probably up there somewhere, but Wilson's way overhyped. That's it for me. A lot of Fields love on this podcast from Alex. It's a good segment, some good draft talk, some Darnold talk. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you guys next week. All right, welcome in college basketball segment of episode 21 of the ESPN Sports Talk podcast. I'm joined by Leon and Alex. We're going to review the final four from both the men's and women's brackets, talk about why UConn lost. Um, 
why they couldn't get it done. Paige Beckers didn't really come through as much as we had expected. We're going to talk about some draft prospects, all of that. Jalen Suggs shot. So we'll start with Suggs shot, right? You know, this shot's going to go down in history, but they didn't win the championship. So, you know, does it compete with Jenkins shot from Villanova a few years ago? Leitner shot many years ago. Alex, in your opinion, where does this shot rank all time? Well, it was certainly pretty mind-blowing. I was watching the game, uh, pulling for UCLA, I'm going to be honest, and and they tie it up with like three seconds left, the inbounds the ball. I'm like, okay, we're going to overtime, and then Suggs hits the shot. We've all seen it. It's definitely up there. I, you bring up the Jenkins one, though. I, that has to go down in, in, in college basketball history as, as probably the greatest shot ever. I mean, that's for the championship buzzer beater after Marcus Page just hit that ridiculous, like, awkward jumping off balance three-pointer to tie it up. I mean, that has that definitely has to be it for me. But this is definitely up there. I think Leitner's – this is up there with Leitner. Um, but, you you know, you mentioned it. They, they don't end up pulling off the, the championship victory. And so I think that kind of leaves an, an asterisk uh, on this on this moment in college basketball as, like, the, the you know, the – precursor to losing the national championship by a large margin. Um, so, you know, it, it's up there, but definitely not uh, comparable to Jenkins in my opinion. Leon, is that something you agree with? It's not, it's not the greatest shot of all time in college basketball, but it's, it's right up there with the shot from Jenkins of Villanova. Yeah. I, I agree with Carr. Definitely top five. I believe Jenkins shot was the best shot ever in college basketball. That was to win the national title. If Gonzaga would have won the national title, Maybe it could have competed with Jenkins' shot, but yeah. And the other the other thing I like to consider, right, is w- what was the score, right? In that game, it's a tie game, so he's hitting a shot that that you know it's the game winning shot. But had they been down, it's like you know this perfect season's gonna end, and then he saves it with the shot. Like that didn't happen, and then they lost. So those are like two asterisks that I think take it away. I think that shot from Jenkins is the greatest college basketball shot of all time. Um, and then let's talk about the final, like, you know, the finals, right? Baylor just really beat down on Gonzaga. Gonzaga got down early, couldn't come back. And it was the same deal we saw when Baylor played Houston in the final four. Like, they absolutely demolished them. And, it, you know, Baylor was a one seed. So to say they're disrespected, maybe not fair. But there really wasn't a lot of talk about Baylor. Like, not a lot of brackets had picked Baylor to win. Gonzaga was his heavy favorite. But watching the final four, Baylor looked like the like clearly the best team in all of college basketball. Alex, do you think that they were underrated? Oh yeah, definitely. I you know they came in and just like blew the doors off of Houston, and then did it again against Gonzaga, the undefeated team. The the team, you know, so many people had picked to win the whole thing. Of course, they're underrated. And when you come in and do that to the number, the overall number one seed, the consensus favorite for the champion. Uh, for the championship by far the team that hadn't lost a game all year and you beat them by like 20, whatever they did. Yeah. I, I have to say you're pretty underrated. Yeah. Leon looking at specifically the final game, but also the game against Houston, like were there certain players for Baylor that stood out as, you know, X factors? What was the reason that Baylor was able to shut down that Gonzaga offense, which was one of the best of all time. The shooting Devon Mitchell, um, Jared Butler and that offensive rebounding. I, I believe they got like eight offensive rebounds. That was three more than the, the whole Gonzaga team right there. And Baylor, Baylor, I don't think they're disrespected. If there were a season last year, I believe Baylor would have won in March Madness and there would be a different story. I don't believe they were disrespected. I believe people just didn't watch them enough to like know they were that good. Yeah, and to wrap up this men's segment here, and we've got to talk about these draft draft prospects. The final four was insane with potential first round talent. I mean, Jalen Suggs and Corey Kispert and Davion Mitchell, who you just mentioned, Drew Timmy could fall late in the first. Johnny Juzang, Jared Butler, Joel Ayayi, and then Teague of uh, Baylor as well. So, I mean, there's so many guys that could fall into this first round. Beyond Jalen Suggs, who, you know, could be the second, third, fourth pick in this draft, you know, some even talk about maybe the first. Which prospect interests you the most, Leon? If you're the Lakers and you have, you know, the the – 15th pick, where would you – which prospect would you like? I believe uh, Johnny Juzang, the Cinderella story. I believe the way he uh, improved his draft stock through March Madness, the way he can shoot the ball, the way he can score is uh, pretty amazing. And uh, he's, he's a fellow Asian, so I got to go with him. 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> Alex, which prospect would you be most interested to follow through the NBA? I'm intrigued by Drew Timmy. This guy is great with his feet. Uh, he's great at getting positioning inside. He's relatively physical. I mean, it's college basketball, so it's not the NBA, but he's, he's relatively physical as well. Uh, you know, I hated watching him throughout college basketball this season because he was so good, and it was really annoying to just watch him pivot around on that foot inside until a, a little opening opened up where he could throw up and a layup and, and nail it. I'm interested to see how, if, if at all, how well that game translates to the NBA. I, I think he's definitely an interesting prospect, and he's kind of uh, won the Malone Award for the best power forward in, in, in the country this year as well. I think he's kind of overlooked in a, in a way. You know, everyone's talking about Jalen Suggs, Johnny Juzane, Corey Kispert. Um, and, and just on Gonzaga alone, I, I know Suggs, Kispert, um, Ayayi. Like, they got so much talent on that team, it almost feels like Timmy's a little bit overlooked. Yeah, I disagree. I mean, I love Timmy, right? I think he, I talked about him last week. He was a stud throughout the tournament. But this Baylor game was the perfect example of why Timmy will be a terrible NBA prospect, in my opinion, because just looking at the guy, right, he can't defend a chair. I mean, the, they're targeting him defensively every single time. They're screening. They're screening. They're making back screens, like setting multiple screens just to get Timmy on Davion Mitchell. Like, that's the mismatch that – if this guy's what, 6'10, 6'11, like if you're that that height in the NBA, you have to be able to guard, you know, decent players. And Davion Mitchell isn't an NBA superstar yet. So if he can't contain him, I mean, Davion Mitchell made him look silly almost every time. Like that, in my opinion, was one of the biggest parts of the game. And then obviously defensively, Baylor just absolutely shutting down. We got foul trouble from Timmy and Sugg. I don't think Timmy will be a great prospect personally. Um, but the guy I'm I'm watching for sure is Davion Mitchell, a lockdown defender, a shooter, a guy who can do it off the bounce. I mean, this was a guy who really looked like a Jimmy Butler um, with a better jump shot, I think, in the in the uh, final, the championship there. I think that would be a perfect NBA comparison. Leon, you're shaking your head. Why? I think Marcus Smart. I think Marcus Smart is a great defender, just like uh, Davion Mitchell and I, I didn't see much of him, but I, what I saw in the Mar uh, finals, his shooting is incredible. And I believe Marcus Smart has improved every single year. I believe Davon Mitchell will be the same. He'll improve. And I bet I think his comparison is smart. I like the comparison defensively. Offensively, though, I think that is complete disrespect to Davion Mitchell. He's a much better shooter than Marcus Smart. He's a much better ball handler. He can do it off of the bounce. Um, you don't really see Marcus Smart ever isolate players, so I think – that, that's why I would compare him. And then another guy I'd like to watch is Corey Kispert, the small forward from, from Gonzaga. He won the award for best small forward in the country. Um, and this is a guy who can shoot the lights out of the ball. He's, he's six, eight, six, nine. He's huge. Um, he can defend. I really would love him to be on like the Celtics or, you know, some, some team that needs shooting from the perimeter. Maybe the Lakers, LeBron could target him. Could be, could be. Let GM. Yeah. All right, let, let's go to the woman's side real quick, and mainly just to talk about UConn. Arizona obviously winning it all, but first they beat UConn in the Final Four. Just UConn just didn't look like themselves. Offense didn't get going. Um, Paige Beckers really didn't really get going herself. She had, what, 18 points maybe. Um, Kristen Williams looked pretty good, but other than that, UConn was just flat offensively. Leon, why is that? It was a bad start. We saw what happened with UConn having a slow – UConn women having a slow start. And then we saw what happened with Gonzaga having a slow start. It's just college basketball. If you get off to a slow start, you're gonna you're, you're gonna have it's gonna be hard to get back into the game. Also, UConn got a uh, pretty bad call with um, uh, Kristen Kristen Williams. That was, that was big, but it, it almost felt like too late for them to win anyway. And I, I want to correct myself. I said Arizona won. I meant Stanford won the national championship. Arizona was the one that beat UConn in the Final Four. And in my opinion. Like, look, you can blame the officials. I thought the UConn offense was just absolutely shut down in large part to Area McDonald, the point guard for um, Arizona, who was just draining threes on them, which might have suffocated UConn a little bit, you know, because of the stress they had on her defensively. Um, but also her defense on Paige Beckers was incredible. I mean, she was, she was playing super tight. Paige Beckers just couldn't get around the screens, couldn't create enough space. And I think – you know, we talked about Paige being the greatest UConn player of all time. To not make it to this championship, to not win a championship, competing with Brianna Stewart, who in my opinion is the number one Husky of all time, 
like that's going to be tough to surpass her if she didn't win that championship. And then, you know, now she has to win three straight to be in that conversation, in my opinion. Right, Leon? Yeah, I agree with that, but I still think she can do it. I believe next year they have the number one player coming in, and I believe they can win three straight easily. And was Kristen Kristen Williams was number one, too, as well, right? Like two years ago? I think she might have been number one. She was she was really highly recruited, highly touted. Um, so you know they're getting two number ones in Beckers, and next year they have the number one recruit coming in as well. If Kristen was number one, that would be three in a row. But regardless, like as you mentioned, they didn't have one senior on the roster this year. All those girls coming back, I would like to see how they could turn it around. Um, and I, they have to be the the next. And they can't make a layup. If they, if they can make a layup, it would be a different story. This is true. Look, UConn had this one coming. They they robbed Baylor. That was 100% a foul at the end of that game. They arguably should have lost that one. I think they had this Yeah, but, but I think you could also – karma for the Baylor game. You get beat by Arizona. Well, there was a lot of missed calls in that one as well. Though. But you're right. I mean, UConn, UConn really played two games that were off of, you know, what we would expect from them as this heavy favorite, Beckers and Kristen Williams. You know, they just have so many superstars. We would have expected better. But, you know, they win. they win one of them – they fall short in the other. It's not, you know, you can't say it's a complete disappointment to lose in the Final Four, but I think, you know, just that's kind of the reputation they've developed under Gino Oriyama to be the national champion every single year. So we'll see how they can rebound. All right, I think that's enough for our college basketball segment. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you in a little bit. Moving into the soccer segment, the ESPN Sports Talk podcast. We got some Champions League on today. There was some on yesterday as well. Obviously, it's Wednesday. Not sure when this will come out. Uh, but let's start with yesterday's games. Dortmund played City, and City won 2-1. And uh, Madrid, this is the big headliner, Madrid played Liverpool, and Madrid won 3-1 at home. General reactions to these games. Okay, so um, I would just like to say, like, the most important thing we have to say is how unbelievably stupid that call was from the ref against Dortmund because I mean it, like they called the foul it, like he didn't even touch him he, and I'm pretty sure when I was watching it I didn't they didn't go back and look at VAR like I'm pretty sure the ref didn't go back and look at VAR which is just like so irresponsible and it would have made the game 2-2 away for Dortmund which is would have been huge because I mean that's against Man City if they could just pack it in that's a win like if if even if it's a one-one draw, like that's a win for Dortmund. So that would have been like massive, but the ref screwed them over, and I just, yeah, it just makes me so angry. Yeah, I, I saw that too, uh, and raised a lot of question marks, at least from my perspective. That is, you brought this up that that is absolutely huge if you get that, and and so you you, know, you think about it. Two goals away from home for Dortmund. They go into the second leg tied. Dortmund will, if no goals are scored, move on by default on away goals. Those two away goals could have been huge. I think that really puts Dortmund, they could have been the favorite to move on in in that game, moving into the second leg, if that Bellingham goal had been reviewed. And I'm I'm almost certain that it would have been overturned. That was a goal, 100%. Um, If that had been overturned, Dortmund goes in, in my opinion, as the favorite into this next leg just because of those two away goals. I think that that changes the dynamic of not only this tie, but the whole Champions League in general, because it basically throws everything that we've been talking about into chaos. I mean, we we pretty much assumed, hey, the big game here, the two big games here are are, uh, City or sorry, Madrid and Liverpool and Bayern and PSG. Bayern and PSG is the headliner. We all assumed. Uh, you know, the other one doesn't matter. City moves on. But Dortmund could have really made this interesting. So I- I'm curious, is is it still up in the air? Or is is that – what's the difference between having this 2-1 lead for City versus a 2-2 draw going into the second leg? I think there's still that away goal. You know what you talk about, just pa- kind of packing it in in Germany and, and, and you know, I guess playing the Mourinho way and parking the bus. You know, if you can if you can send Erling Holland up or or a Marco Royce like who scored versus City or or even Jude Bellingham, obviously he's shown, you know, how quality he can be, obviously, besides the shambolic refereeing decision, but that's it's over now. You can't really change it. Um, if you can score one goal, you're still through because that that is a very, very crucial away goal. And that's you know, when we start talking about Real Madrid Liverpool, 
that's Liverpool's only hope right now is that one away goal. And I think that's Dortmund's same thing is if, if they can, if they can pull anything in Germany, right. If they can keep the score low, uh, you know, to a, to a one nil or, or something, or, or even a two one, if they can, if they can pull off a good win with a two one, I mean, they're through. And I, I think they still have that, that element of favoritism because it showed well, that man city a 2-1 for for Dortmund right would send it into extras right uh no it wouldn't because no yeah it would yeah you're right it would, it would but, I, but it, the thing with that is it would still it would still keep the tie in the balance right where it would still be possible for Dortmund to move on where I, and I, th- I think Dortmund just have that mindset they can go into it they have really obviously with Erwin Collins a very very uh, clinical deadly goal scorer who can go in and score anything you know, kind of almost out of thin air. And I think if they play their, if they play their cards right, they can really, you know, hit Man City hard and, and cause them to stress because they didn't play well enough yesterday and they really got lucky with a 90th minute Foden goal and one of the worst refereeing decisions I've seen in a long time. I think kind of the entire soccer world has that same opinion. So what's the game plan for Dortmund going into the second leg? They have the two nil lead. They have the one away goal. That I think that away goal, at least in my opinion, isn't very secure. And I, I think it's almost City's too good to not score and level it up on away goals. So in my opinion, Dortmund just has to outright win this tie. You can't stress about the away goals and packing it in. I think that plays to their strength too, because I think, and 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 I, I want to hear what you guys think about this as well. I think the strategy for Dortmund going into the second game is let's just score as many freaking goals as possible. Let's send Holland forward. Let's send Royce forward. Let's send Sancho forward. Let's press City as, as hard as we can and, and, and push for these goals and try and put up like four goals, which we've done in the past in the Champions League, and just outscore them to win this tie. I think that plays to Dortmund's advantage, and I think that's the best way to go about it because I don't like sitting back and like you said, Austin, parking the bus and just hoping to retain on retain that one goal, that one away goal, uh, and play defense the entire match and get a one nil win and move on. I don't think that's how Dortmund likes to play, and I don't think that's possible given how good City is. I think pressing. I think what you're saying about pressing Man City, with that being, it's going to turn into a counterattack football game, and I think that. Man City is actually very good at the counterattack. So I think Dortmund, I agree with Austin. I think Dortmund need to get one or two goals and then sit back and park the bus. I think, honestly, the most important thing for Dortmund this game is, like, they have to score first. If they don't score first, it's game over. Because um, if they, even if, if they win 1-0, they win the game. Like, they win the series. But... So they can sit back, but if Man City scores, then it's game over because then Dortmund has to score two and then they go into tie. And Man City, if they're parking the bus, they have such a good defense that even Erling Holland can't score two on them, or it's unlikely. And it's even less likely that he's going to get a third in overtime. So I just, I think that like they, if, if they can score first, that changes the whole momentum of the game. And because this way they can sit back and Man City has to attack. So I, I just I think that that's the most crucial thing. I think if Man City scores first, I would I think it's secure enough that I call it game over. I, I agree with that general sentiment sentiment that, but I, I think it comes down to you have to win this early. You have to win the first half. Whoever wins the first half wins this whole thing. And and by winning, I mean you know, goals in the first half, dominance in the first half, like whoever controls the game and basically wins the game within the first half when it comes to ball domination, when it comes to goals, if there are any, chances created, putting pressure on the other team offensively, shutting down the other team defensively, whoever does that better in the first half wins this tie because Dortmund is just not as good as Manchester City. We know that. Like City is, is probably the most talented team in the world. They can't if, – if the later – the longer this game goes and the longer City is able to keep themselves in it, the better the odds that I think City comes out with a win and they just score some late minute, I don't know, but miraculous goal from De Bruyne or whatever it is and win this tie. 
that's something I don't think Dortmund can do. So Dortmund has to win this game early and they have to put City out of it early and put themselves at an advantage. So when City start, when that attrition starts to kick in and, and City starts to make that late push, like I think they will, I think Dortmund will then be in a good position to just kind of say, okay, we can even concede a goal and, and not really have to worry about it. Um, let's move on now to the Madrid-Liverpool game. Liverpool came away with a 3-1 defeat. Uh, it wasn't at the study uh, at the Bernabeu, but it was technically home for Madrid. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts moving into this second leg? I mean, is, is Liverpool just out of it at this point? I, I think so. Um, I mean, like, we've seen them come back from things like this, but they just they don't have the defense for it. Like, they don't have, like, their stuff together. It's just – it was – it was sad to watch. Like I didn't, I didn't watch the whole game, but it was sad to watch like the highlights. Considering like it's such a good game this weekend. Like Trent had an assist. Fabinho was dominant, and now that like and then in this game, Trent assisted Asensio. Like it was, it was just a poor performance by everyone on that field. It was like I can see them coming up with the big with a big performance, but I just I don't think it's possible at this point. Uh, I agree with Thaddeus. I think. Like watching this past game, I don't think that Liverpool is their defense at least is reliable enough to say that they're going to be able to pull through and have a shutout and not be able to get gore scored on them. Yeah, it, it's just it seems crazy to me to think that this is the team that won the championship in the Premier League last year. Not even close to that this year. They sit in seventh. And then two years ago, they won the Champions League. And, and even though they're in the quarterfinal stage, they're getting dominated by, by Madrid. I think I, I, Liverpool need to score one to two goals within the first, like, 30 minutes probably to have any chance at this thing. I think it's pretty much over. Madrid's just so good. They're on form in La Liga. They're making a push for – they're ma- them and Barcelona are making a push at Atletico. I, I, I can't see them pulling it out. Austin – what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just agree with the general sentiment going around. That there's no there's no way, you know, that, that, that Liverpool can pull it back. I, I actually disagree with that, saying they can pull a big performance. I don't think with the form that they are currently on that they have it in them to even pull a big performance. I mean, as great of a manager as Jurgen Klopp is, there's only so much that he can do to get his team ready to, you know, to really push for that good result. Um you know, I think if there were if there were fans in the stadiums, maybe it would be different. You know, because obviously Anfield has been known in recent years, especially as being kind of a fortress when there's fans. You know, for for being unbeatable. But I, I just I can't see it happening right now because you you know you talk about that they're being pressed by Real Madrid, but it isn't just Real Madrid. It's a 21 year old and a 32- and a 35-year-old that are really doing the most. I mean, Luka Modric and Toni Kroos had an incredible game yesterday, but they always do. Liverpool, at the moment, doesn't have that player or those two players that can really control much of anything. I mean, Mohamed Salah is very good, but, I mean, there's only so much he can do. Diogo Jota is very good. Um, But, again, you have those two who can't really do much independently. Um, It's... Sad to see, I guess, overall, as a United fan, it's kind of nice, but I, I, I don't see any way that they can come back. Yeah, it's crazy to think of it. I know I mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to repeat it because it's so crazy to me. you got a team who won the Premier League who will not be playing at all in Europe, not even in the Europa League for the most, most likely scenario. That's insane. Let's talk about today's Champions League mashups and obviously the big headliner, Bayern PSG. In the quarterfinals, we got the repeat of the finals last year with some differences. And we were talking about this before, me and Thad. Bayern will be without arguably their two best players, Serge Gnabry and Robert Lewandowski. For uh, at, at, I know Serge is out for both matches. I'm not sure about Lewandowski out for the second uh, return match to Paris. What are the odds that, that PSG moves on, let's say, Lewandowski misses the first match and makes the second match? 50-50. Like, 50-50. I mean, I think I, mean, I think everyone here, even the PSG fan, would agree that Bayern's a better team than PSG. 
and like overall, like they just have they have it together in the way that PSG just does not like. They're they're just such a good team. They've got the chemistry. They've got better depth than PSG without spending the money, and I think that honestly adds something to their play. They've got Thomas Muller, who is the third best cam in the world and is one of a kind in the way that he plays. So if I think like, I mean, they've got some young players who can fill in for Nabry and um, like Lewandowski. Like I'm pretty sure they're going to put like Chupo Moting up top and there's no one better than Chupo Moting and like uh, probably Komen right wing, Sané left wing, something like that. And I mean, that's still a great attack. So I, I can't see them like being blown out or anything just because they're missing a few forwards. But I think a one or two nil win for PSG might be a fair, like might be a, a good, like a, a result I would expect. And then, I mean, Lewandowski and Nabry are just so good that it's going to be difficult for um, like PSG to handle them like, like the second round. I mean, they couldn't in the finals. So. Yeah. So the current odds on, at least the first leg stand Bayern Munich is negative one Oh three on the money line and PSG is plus two fifty five. So Bayern Munich is favored right now, uh, slightly by Vegas. Uh, who, who you guys, I mean, obviously Thad will, will take Bayern in this one. And I think I'm leaning more and more towards Bayern will end up winning this tie just because PSG have struggled recently. 1-0 loss against Lille. They're coming off of that. They're in Germany. They're playing against a team that, although they're missing Lewandowski and Gnabry, has been really, really good lately. Probably up there with City for the best team in the world. Um, PSG's missing Baratti. He's their link guy in the midfield. I, It's tough for me to see a way in which PSG come out with a win in this tie, maybe they win one of the man. Maybe they win one of the matches, um, but overall, I don't see a way in which PSG comes out with the win, and that hurts me to say that. Wow, the PSG man won't even take PSG in this tie. I, I, I don't. Think, I don't know how. I don't know how, how do they win. I think if Mbappe has a good game, and their defense can stay locked up then i think that's how they win but but is okay, that but possible to do against Bayern? Yeah, if that's- mbappe can do it against barcelona i think he can do it against Bayern. no this is one of those the best Bayern totally teams different. of the past probably 20 years and that is one of the worst barcelona teams of the past 20 years that's the difference Okay, okay. Let's chill with the shots at Barcelona. All right. No, I, I'm I I enjoy watching Barcelona. I like Barcelona, but I mean they they just haven't performed, right? And I think you can agree that they haven't performed. This Bayern team is incredible. They're just a great team to watch. And I think even you know even without those attackers, I think that their defense is so strong. Obviously, um, with Manuel Neuer in goal, one of the great. I would say one of the greatest goalies of the modern age um you know with him in goal and i think with a very strong defensive line that they have i i just don't i agree with card i don't see a way that there can possibly be a a solid psg win maybe a 1-1 or something like that or maybe even a nil-nil draw i think after the first leg but i just I, i can't see psg coming out of this with any solid results especially with the loss of Verratti. i mean that's huge that's their that's their main man in the midfield I mean, Paredes is, you know, he's he's pretty good. Uh, and, and you have other guys in there who fill in sometimes. And Herrera, which mainly, he hasn't played a lot of Champions League football. Like, Verratti is their guy in the midfield. And so crucial. I think what's something that's so crucial to this game um, is who can fuel their attack better. And when you have guys like Kimmich and Goretzka compared to uh, whoever they put, uh, it's probably going to be Paredes and, and somebody else in the midfield. Like whoever you put in there, I think even though Mbappe and Neymar and and Di Maria and Icardi, whoever they decide to put up top, is better than what Bayern does because Bayern's missing Lewandowski and Gnabry. It's so important to who who is like linking the play between defense and attack. And PSG without Verratti are lacking so much in that department. 
and, and Bayern hold the clear advantage when it comes to the midfield. And I think even though they're missing their two attackers, they could still have the better attack because they're better at preparing it through the midfield. I mean, I think that's probably for me, that's the reason I would have to pick PS or sorry, Bayern in this one, because I just don't have faith without Verratti and in that PSG midfield. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Like, I think, I mean, Bayern's top two midfield, top three midfields in the world, like Kimmich, Muller, um, Goretzka, all great players, top, top tier. So um, if PSG doesn't even have their best midfielder and the other two are, I wouldn't I wouldn't call Adjusti Gay or Paredes world-class. Yeah, I mean, they're good players, but they're not world-class. So um, I think just they, they would need Verratti to even hold a chance in the midfield. And at this point, they don't. And Bayern's got a good enough defense where Mbappe is not going to be able to really like be that dominant player he was in the first round against Barcelona. So and, and Neymar will be back, so I think that could make things interesting. But somebody needs to somebody needs to provide the passes to Neymar. Neymar can't just mm-hmm. bring it up from defense by himself. All right, and then the last Champions League tie. I think we can all agree this is the least interesting of all of them. Porto Chelsea. Uh, real quick before we go, let's just pick some winners here uh, for this for this tie, Porto Chelsea. Nick, what do you think? I think we lost Nick. Austin, what are you thinking? Well, I, I you know I think that Chelsea are going to come out of it as winners in the end, but I don't think it's going to be a non-interesting match. I think Porto played really well against Juventus, and I think it could be it could be close. Um, but yeah, I think Chelsea probably come out in the end, um, as fun as it may be. Dad. Um. Yeah, I mean probably Chelsea. Uh, they've got Werner, and even though he's not on form, it's still Werner. Like he's good. So I don't know. I, just, I think they're good. Nick says Chelsea as well. I'm gonna take Porto here. I'll just I'll be a little bit of a maverick here and, and say Porto. We'll come back to this next week and see how I did. But thank you guys for joining us. Uh, we will recap uh, the ties next Wednesday and and get some projections. This podcast was modified band. and produced uh, by the prestigious editor Gabriel Aguero. See you next week.